Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, it's a great privilege to be with you here this morning. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. I'm not sure we're the largest evangelical church in the UK, we're, 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 uh, but, uh, but it's good to be here. And I was met by Crystal on the way, who has a lovely dentition. She gave me a lovely smile. Uh, it was a great to see that fine smile this morning. Well, at Charlotte Chapel, I've been preaching through the letter of Romans for the first time. And um, when I got to Romans chapter 5, I'd originally intended to preach 1 to 11. But as I sort of studied for it, it was so rich that we thought, we've got to slow this down. And we preached it through f- four Sundays. And... Uh, I don't really know you very well, this is my first time here, so I'm going to kind of preach a sermon that I preached at Charlotte Chapel a few weeks ago, and um, it will connect because it's the gospel. So please open your Bibles to um, Romans chapter 5. I want to focus particularly this morning on verses 6 to 8, but let's take the time to read from the very first verse. Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would you just pray with me for a moment? Father, we are amazed that you love us. Thank you for causing it to be written down so that in our weakest moments we could see it in black and white. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit would pour your love into each one of our hearts and that you would assure us in whatever circumstances we are going through right now. In Christ's name, amen. These are very wonderful verses. They're just full of assurance for the person who's put their trust in Jesus Christ. And in my experience, we need to regularly return to passages just like this because I think we default to a kind of natural theology, a sort of a theology that determines who I am and 
where I am in relation to God in, in my experiences and, and in my situation. When the sun is shining, and um, it doesn't happen very often in Scotland, but when the sun is shining and my family is, is, is well and, and no one is angry at me, I haven't had any angry emails in my inbox, well, I, I can just feel, well, God loves me. Things are great. But what is, what is it like when life is falling apart? How do we feel when I'm in pain? When someone in my family is suffering or dying? When I lose my job? When I've lost my temper? When I've succumbed to temptation? When I've been a disappointment to myself? When I've been a disappointment to others? How do we think of ourselves at that point in our relationship with God? See, natural theology easily kicks in at that point. We think, well, God is against me. God is angry with me. He's punishing me. He does not love me. And that's when I most need to return to a passage like this in Romans chapter five. We need to keep coming back to the Bible to hear what is objectively true of the person who has been justified through trusting Jesus Christ. And so if you've put your trust in Christ, listen to what is true of you today. Verse one, you have peace with God. God has brought the most amazing reconciliation between himself and us. This was a huge deal. But you now have peace with God. We have gained access to God's grace. A bunch of tourists bumped into a little old lady walking around Balmoral uh, Forest with a headscarf on and they chatted to her and they said, well, do you, do you live near here? She said, yes, I've got a house just around the corner. And... Um, they said, have you met the queen? And she said, I've never met the queen. She said, but this man here has met her several times. That was her protection officer. They'd met the queen. They had no idea. You, you can't just bowl into the presence of, of the queen normally. You don't normally just bump into her unless you're walking around Balmoral. I think Bill Curtis met her uh, at, at a chapel service. You have to gain access. You've got to be allowed in. Well, here's the extraordinary thing. We have been gained access into God's grace. Our whole life is surrounded by the grace of God. And not only is that so, but we can have full assurance of a glorious eternal future. So much so that we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. Going somewhere nice and holiday this summer? I'm going to glory. We can boast in it. It's absolutely certain. For those who have been justified, they will be glorified. It is so wonderful. But how does experience relate to that? Well, he deals with that in verses three and four. And it comes up with this extraordinary statement. We can also glory or boast even in our sufferings. Now, how can this be so? Well, he says to them, we know, we know this, that the experience of suffering does not ultimately harm or weaken the faith of the justified believer. Actually, it serves to strengthen their faith and strengthen their hope. We know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces this tested provenness of character which serves to strengthen our hope of sharing in God's glory. And alongside all those difficulties, we, we get these wonderful verses of verse five, this experience of the justified believer that through the ongoing work of the Spirit, we experience the love of God being poured into our lives. Now that's the immediate context. 
And um, I love it that no sooner has Paul mentioned the love of God that he has to develop it. He has to expand on it. For when we grasp the love of God and the nature of it, then there is great assurance for the Christian believer. Even in the most difficult circumstances. See, the subjective experience of God's love in my heart is actually objectively demonstrated in history through the death of Jesus Christ. We just sang about it. And if we're lacking a, 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 a sort of sense of the experiential love of Christ at the moment, the key thing is to, is to come closer to the cross. Open up one of the gospels, read the account, pray, ask the Lord to soften your heart again, to see, to see the, his great love. And what we need to notice here is that God's saving love was emphatically proved within history when we needed it most. That's what verse six says. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. It reminds us, of course, that our faith is rooted in history. And it reminds us that it was all part of God's sovereign plan of redemption. The Apostle Paul has already alerted us to this at the very beginning of his letter. The gospel is the one that God promised beforehand through the Old Testament prophets in the scriptures. The whole of the Old Testament is building and pointing to the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ. But by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, what is also clear to us at that point in human history is how utterly lost and spiritually bankrupt we are as human beings without God's grace. See, our sinful rebellion it was, is clearly seen from the garden onwards, despite the many advantages even that uh, the Israelites had in having the very law of God. By the time you reach the end of history, it is absolutely clear we are totally powerless to save ourselves from our sins. We're powerless to make ourselves right with God. Paul Barnett's little commentary uh, alerted me to this as he pointed to the word still. When we were still powerless, after all those generations, all the best efforts, still powerless, while we were still ungodly, still living our lives without regard for God. Verse eight, while we were still sinners, See, at this point in human history, it was beyond doubt that we were totally lost and, and incapable of saving ourselves. At this point, when we needed it most, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus, of course, was regularly criticized for um, spending time with those who were deemed to be especially sinful and irreligious. He, he would eat meals with them. He'd spend time with people with very dodgy pasts and questionable morality. And uh, as he was challenged, Jesus' reply was this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And this is such wonderful news when you realize that you are one of those who are sick and sinful. See, if you think that you're spiritually healthy, Dr. Jesus has got nothing for you. 
But if you become aware of how spiritually bankrupt you are, when you realize that how sin has completely enslaved you and is destroying your relationships and, and destroying your life, then I, I, we should never think that this disqualifies us. Quite the opposite. The love of God is proved by how he loved us when we desperately needed it the most. It was precisely for powerless, godless sinners that Christ died. But secondly, notice from this passage that God's saving love was shown to those who deserved it the least. Who do we love? Well, put on the radio, you, you'll hear what, what people love. And, uh, you know, generally it goes something like this. I won't sing to you. I'm not quite as good as the brother who led us earlier. But they sort of sing about, I love you because you are gorgeous. You're so beautiful. I love you. I love the way you look. I love you. I, I love the way you make me feel. I love you because you love me. That's, that's, the, that's love songs basically, isn't it? We find we love those who are attractive to us, who are lovable. Uh, we generally just love people who love us. Now compare God's love to the best of human love. That's what verse seven encourages us to do, doesn't it? Very rarely Will anyone die for a righteous person? You know, that upstanding, impressive person who's a bit cold, will someone die for them? Well, probably not. Though for a good person, someone, you know, who's done good in your life, who's warm, someone for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. One of my top 10 favorite films is Saving Private Ryan. So powerful, uh, those uh, soldiers sent behind enemy lines in World War II in order to rescue Private Ryan, bring him back to his mother before all her children are killed in the war. And uh, a number of them lose their lives in the process or are injured, and one of the questions they keep asking is they, as they risk their lives is, was, was Private Ryan worth it? I mean, who would you be prepared to die for, really? Who would you be prepared to die for? Uh, would you die for your friend? have to be a pretty good friend. Would you die for your wife? Hopefully, yes, yes, I would die for my wife. Yes, yes, of course I would. What about someone who dislikes you? What about someone who keeps ignoring you in groups? What about someone who seems to take delight in saying malicious slander against you? Would you give your life up for that person? I don't think so. I really don't. Verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we cared nothing for God, when our actions were ugly, and when they were disgusting to him, when we thanklessly took all he had to give us but refused to acknowledge him. Verse 10 even intensifies it for us. While, while we were God's enemies, and we should be in no doubt that God is the enemy of sinners. God's holiness is such that he has to punish sin and wickedness. 
Chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But here is the most glorious and amazing thing. This God of holiness who is, his nature, his wrath is, comes upon sinners and yet this is a God of love. See, not only did God demonstrate his love when we needed it most, but he demonstrated his love when we deserved it the least. See, what's one of the great fears as you begin to get to know people and they get to know you? Well, I think especially as you're falling in love. What's, what's your fear? It's this uncertainty. Would they still love me if they really knew me? You see, everyone's on their best behavior when you first go out on those first few dates. There's a fear. If they really knew me, would they love me? Here's the most wonderful thing about God, isn't it? He knows all things. He knows everything about us. He knows the things about us that you haven't shared with anybody. Our darkest actions, our most disgusting thoughts, he knows us. And yet he loves us. Isn't that incredible? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the gospel uh, both reveals that I am far worse than I had ever imagined, but at the same time, more loved than I could ever dream. And what assurance then that that gives us that even as we become aware of our weakness and of our guilt and our shame. Uh, Mez McConnell is a pastor for Nidri Community Church in Edinburgh. It was actually a church revitalization that came from Charlotte Chapel. And he's a director of 20 schemes that uh, aims to uh, plant churches in some of the poorest housing schemes in Scotland. And he's just published a new book. It's called The Creaking on the Stairs, Finding Faith in God Through Childhood Abuse. Rosaria Butterfield has given this review, the most disturbing book that I have ever read. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And he details the abuse that he experienced as a child growing up in this terrible home. It obviously had a massive impact on his life and initially led him towards a life of drugs, crime, violence, and eventually prison. And then amazingly, he became a Christian, reading a Matthew Henry commentary on the book of Romans, but we'll leave that for another time. And he started going to church, and this is what he writes in his chapter on grace. I'm gonna quote a little bit here. This is Mez now. What if people found out what I was really like? Now these are Christian going to church. What if people found out what I was really like? What a liar I was. What a fantasist. What if they realized that I had done some truly awful things in my life? I thought about a lot of my victims over the years. The people I stabbed, the homes I burgled, the drugs I had sold, the frauds I had committed. I dreaded people who knew me in the past coming into the church to expose me as a charlatan. I used to have nightmares of all the people I ever hurt coming to a church service and sitting there listening as I told them of my new life in Jesus. I could see their sneers. I could hear their jeerings. I could sense the anger, hostility, and cynicism. What a joke, a lying rat like me hanging around respectable people and pretending to be a Christian. It sounded ridiculous to me, and I knew I was genuine. Then one day I discovered these verses in the Bible, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. I discovered that Jesus didn't just die for me, 
but he did it knowing just how ungodly I was. He saved me when I was at my weakest, when I was at my least desirable. He saw me at my worst and still saved me. He did not reach out to me because he saw redeemable features in me, like my fantastic sense of humor. There was nothing lovable about me. There was no good. Instead, his own love compelled him to do it. The sense of freedom and relief this passage brought was profound. No, people in the church did not know what I was truly like, but Jesus did. Yes, people I had hurt could sneer and question my motives, but Jesus had still died for me. Thirdly, notice that God's saving love is now forever proven. Verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, Christ died for us. There is such theological and pastoral gold to be mined in this verse. Just consider what it tells us about our doctrine of God and the divinity of of Jesus. How can it be that the death of this man in history, Jesus of Nazareth, is the very demonstration of the love of God? How could that be? Well, it could only be so if this man who was truly human is also truly God. That's the only way. So that what he does demonstrates the very character and personhood of God. Now this becomes explicitly clear as we get to verse 10. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Just consider that. Through the death of his son. How costly, how extravagant was this sacrificial love. This verse has got to be up there with John 3.16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The Christ who died for us was and is God the Son. The one in whom God the Father was utterly delighted. The one who was most worthy. At his baptism, heaven uh, couldn't let it stand and, and, and cracked open and the voice declared, you are my beloved son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God gave the very best of heaven for the very worst of his creatures. This Christ, the only sinless, perfect man, the one who was infinitely precious as God the Son, sacrificed himself in the place of sinners and he died for us. Now, it's already made explicit in Romans chapter three, verse 23, what the for us bit means. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, of propitiation, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And so in chapter three, Paul makes the point that the cross of Christ actually demonstrates the justice of God. It enables God to, to justify sinners and yet still be just. His, his death turning away God's wrath against our sin by absorbing it in himself 
so that those who trust are completely forgiven. I think we say these words and sing these words almost too frequently, we forget what it means. Christ died for us. And uh, reading through Mez's story of how he experienced as a child abuse, humiliation, mockery, cruelty, violence, hatred, it just brought it home to me afresh when I read it a few weeks ago. And Mez came to see that although he had suffered, Christ had suffered more. Beaten, stripped, mocked, tortured. The delight of heaven chose to come and bear this for us. For me. We must never lose that sense of wonder. For me? But here in chapter five, his point is this. The cross of Christ proves forever God's amazing love to justified believers in his son. Christ died for us. Now did you notice the most surprising tense in verse eight? We would more naturally say this, would we not? But God demonstrated his own love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But that's not what it says, is it? What does it say? God demonstrates. It's present and ongoing. God continues to prove his own love for us in the present by what he has proved to us in the past. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now throughout our lives we will know times of great joy. We'll also know times of great tragedy and tears. We may experience disease and illness. We may experience violence and opposition. We may know heartache and loss. But for the believer, whatever our circumstances, whatever subjective sense I may have at any given moment of God's love in my heart, The love of God for me today is proven forever in the historical event of the death of Christ for me. See, the love of God is is beyond doubt. Paul's gonna develop this further in chapter eight, isn't he? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? My great-grandfather was saved in the Welsh revival of 1904. Uh, They say in that year about 100,000 people came to Christ. He became a complete pain in the neck for the church he was a part of. It was a very liberal church. And there was a, the story comes to the Perkins family, which is my mother's maiden name, that uh, one Sunday the preacher was explaining how Jesus was not divine. And so from the back of the church he started calling out, there's a cockerel crowing. Someone is denying my Lord. And he got thrown out and so he planted a church. Maybe the pillar network, this is a new technique. (laughs) 
But that's how the gospel entered my family and got passed down from the 1904 Welsh Revival. The great hymn of that revival was this hymn. Let me read you the first verse. It was really a rediscovery of the love of God that drove that revival. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. Can you say this for yourself? I hope there's not one person here who could not say that for yourself. It, but if you've not trusted Christ today, why not do it this very day? There is no love like it. Come to him just as you are. He loves you as you are. He's going to not leave you as you are. He's going to do wonderful things in your life, but you can come to him just as you are. What amazing love. God's love when we needed it most, when we deserved it least, and is forever proven every single day day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. What can we say? Such love. We want to praise you and thank you for the Lord Jesus who willingly offered himself in our place. And as we look at the cross, we see your great love to us, our great Father. And we ask that your spirit would continue that work of pouring your love into our hearts. For those who are going through difficult days right now, assure them especially of your great love. Oh, we thank you. Thank you that we're surrounded by grace and destined for glory. In Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.